Deuteronomy 32. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. They have acted corruptly towards him. To their shame, they are no longer his children but a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders and they will explain to you, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. In a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions, the Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruit of the fields. He nourished him with honey from the rock and with oil from the flinty crag with curds and milk from herd and flock, and with fattened lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan and the finest grains of wheat. You drank the blood of the grape. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, he became heavy and sleek. He abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock, his savior. They made him jealous with their foreign gods, and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons which are not God, gods they had not known, gods that had recently appeared, gods your fathers did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. For a fire has been kindled by my wrath one that burns to the realm of death below. It will devour the earth and its harvests and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. 
I will heap calamities upon them and expend my arrows against them. I will send wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. I will send against them the fangs of wild beasts, the venom of vipers that glide in the dust. In the street, the sword will make them childless. In their homes, terror will reign. Young men and young women will perish, infants and gray-haired men. I said I would scatter them and blot out their memory from mankind, but I dreaded the taunts of the enemy, lest the adversary, lest the adversary misunderstand and say, our hand has triumphed. The Lord has not done all this. They are a nation without sense. There is no discernment in them. If only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end will be. How could one man cause a thousand or two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them, unless the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies concede. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom, and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are filled with poison, and their clusters with bitterness. Their wine is the venom of serpents, the deadly poison of cobras. Have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vaults? It is mine to avenge, I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. The Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free. He will say, now where are their gods, the rock they took refuge in, the God who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and declare as surely as I live forever when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, while my sword devours flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. Thank you so much, Joe. Well read. Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you today. Uh, I wonder what is your favourite national anthem, if you have such a thing. Uh, when the Olympics rolls around, or, or the World Cup, or the rugby, whose anthem are you itching to hear? For me, it's a toss-up between, between the wonderfully jolly operatic Italian national anthem, Fratelli d'Italia, you know, you know. Or the beautiful Welsh hymn, Plaid o'loi vinglad, is that 
correct? Close enough, Duff? Close enough. <laughs> Never done that before from the pulpit. Now, anthems are interesting because they tell us a little bit about how a nation views itself. Anthems often tell us the story of the nation. Think of the Marseillaise, the French national anthem, which calls its people to war and revolution. Or the Scottish anthem, Flower of Scotland, which celebrates a famous victory against the English and rather ominously prophesies that those days will come again. It's a bit aggressive, but okay. Anthems give us a picture of the national character. Australians tell us that they are one and free. The Irish rugby team declare that they are together standing tall, and they are big lads, to be fair. And anthems often serve as a warning to other nations not to mess with them. The Americans tell us that theirs is the land of the free and the home of the brave. The Ukrainians sing, as in springtime melts the snow, so shall melt away the foe. National anthems bear witness to the rest of the world of the glorious history and powerful character of a nation. Well, this song that Joe has uh, just read to us is Ancient Israel's National Anthem. Just look uh, with, back with me at chapter 31 and verse 19, when God says to Moses, now write down for yourselves this song and teach it to the Israelites and make them sing it so that it may be a witness for me against them. God tells Moses to teach this song to the people and have them sing it, but do you see the shock of that verse? The anthem is not a witness for them, to the nations, but a witness against them. As I'm sure you heard when they were read, these words which Israel are to sing and to teach to their children so they can sing them are actually an account not of their successes and their exemplary national character, but of their failures and their stubbornness of heart. In verse 1 of chapter 32, Moses calls heaven and earth to bear witness. He summons all of creation to the divine courtroom to hear God's damning verdict on his own people. Every time the Israelites sing their national anthem, they themselves call heaven and earth and all the nations of the world to see how awful they are. Imagine an ancient Israelite competing in the Olympics. They'd be desperately trying not to win, wouldn't they? Because of the shame of standing on the top step of the rostrum and having to sing this. But as we dive into the words of this anthem, we're going to see that this is not just a witness against Israel. Because although this is uniquely Israel's story and things are very different for us, as we're going to see and as we're exploring this week with the growth group members, yet this song has profound things to say to us, to our hearts. It will introduce the themes of the book of Deuteronomy, which we'll be exploring for the next six weeks. But as well as that, it's going to show us that we are not so different from the Israelites. We too will find our own failures and stubbornness of hearts exposed. And yet, paradoxically, this is going to show us that there is hope. This song will show us hope even for people like us. And that's the first surprise of the song, because Moses calls this anthem life-giving words. Life-giving words. Look at uh, verse 1 and 2 with me. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to be hearing Moses' words. Uh, that's the whole book, really. It's a collection of the sermons of Moses to the people of Israel as they stand on the doorstep of the promised land, about to go in and take possession of it. And if we could sum up the whole of Deuteronomy, the whole book in one word, all the message and the whole, all of the sermons of Moses, it would be this, listen. 
We're going to see why it's so important to listen as we go along. But here in verses 1 and 2 is the reason to listen. Moses says his words are like rain on plants. Now, for English gardeners, rain is a constant problem, isn't it? But for Near Eastern farmers like the Israelites, rain is a rare and precious blessing. Rain in a hot, dry land gives life. It awakens seeds in the soil. It brings growth and vitality. Without rain, there is drought and starvation and death. With rain, there is abundance, food, and new life. Such are Moses' words. They're words which will give life to those who hear. And I think that's a surprise, because we've already been told they are words of judgment. They're a witness against the people. They're going to be profoundly uncomfortable words. We will find ourselves, a bit later on in this talk, feeling a little bit squirmy, I think, That's going to be the case throughout the book. Yes, we will hear words of hope and blessing and comfort and grace, but also words of judgment and exposure. These words shine a searchlight into the darkest recesses of the hearts of the Israelites and of our hearts too. It was not always going to be pleasant. It will not always be comfortable. And yet Moses says that these are words of life and growth and health, or at least they can be if we respond rightly to them. And that's because of who he's speaking. Look at verse three. Oh, proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our gods. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. You see, through Moses, we are hearing that God speak. God is called the rock, a metaphor which comes up again and again throughout the song. Think about that image. A rock provides a stable foundation in the shifting sands of the desert. It's a safe and solid place to stand. A rock provides shade from the burning heat of the sun. It's a refuge and it's a shelter. And a rock for the Israelites, and this is a bit of a surprise, and a reminder that we've got to let Bible words have Bible meanings. Rocks mean the provisions of water. A rock means the provision of water, which is a bit odd. But twice in Israel's history, God has miraculously brought forth fresh water from a hard and dry rock. And so the rock is the provider and the thirst quencher. And so no wonder Moses calls the people to praise the greatness of God. A God who does no wrong. Who always speaks truth and justice. Whose proclamations are always right and true and good for us. Whose words give a solid foundation for life. A shelter from the harshness and lies of this world. Living water to quench our thirst and meet our needs. It is this God's word that we're going to hear in this song and throughout the book of Deuteronomy. That's why they're life-giving, even though they're hard and uncomfortable sometimes. So let me ask you a question as we approach this book together. Whose words are you listening to? Which words do you turn to for your foundation? for your comfort and your shelter, for your nourishment? Is your first thought when you wake in the morning to turn to the pages of the Bible and hear from your God? Do you find yourself excited about Sunday because we get to hear the word preached to us? Do you look forward to growth group or real food or connect or focus and the chance to delve deeper into the word and allow that word to delve deeper into your heart? Or do other words simply crowd it out? you find yourself more readily listening to the news writers and opinion makers of our world? Do you find yourself lost in the endless scroll of current affairs and hot takes 
on the latest scandal or crisis? Is your mind filled with thoughts and videos of tastemakers and influencers? Or perhaps it isn't that. Perhaps there's a particular person in your life whose words dominate your thinking, whose opinion sways you more than anyone else's. Or perhaps it's simply that you are more inclined to believe the words of your own heart, the words that tell you that you shouldn't feel guilty for your sin because everyone does it. It wasn't that bad. And anyway, you were stressed and other people just simply don't understand what you're going through. Or the words that tell you that you are so guilty and so shameful that there's no hope for you and not even God could love you. Whose words are you listening to? As we dive into the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to hear the life-giving words of God. It is not going to be comfortable, but if we are prepared to listen by God's Holy Spirit, he is prepared to do as much good to give us life and growth and hope. And that's because, secondly, of his sovereign grace. Here's the second verse of the National Anthem. After telling us about the faithful God, Moses begins a theme that he's going to pick up later in the song, that Israel have been a faithless people. Verse 5. They've acted corruptly towards him. To their shame, they're no longer his children, but a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Do you see here that the gap between the goodness and graciousness of God and the way the people have treated them is starkly exposed? He is their father, the one who gave them life to start with. Later in the song, Moses also says God has been like a mother to them, giving them birth, and yet shockingly, verse 5, they're no longer his children. Israel, God's firstborn son, even before they enter the land, have shown themselves to bear nothing of the family likeness. They're a warped and crooked generation, a people who show a twisted tendency to sin. And remember, this is a song that every subsequent generation is to learn and to sing. It isn't that this particular generation is a particularly bad bunch. Do you remember at school there was always that year group that was sort of uniquely awful? Teachers? Yep. Uh, No, but this is not like this. This is a standing rebuke to every generation to come. And yet Moses' focus in these verses is that the sovereign God has shown himself to be persistently, supremely, patiently gracious to this wicked and wayward people. Look at verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father, he'll tell you. Your elders, they'll explain it to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted inheritance. You see, God is Yahweh is not just the local God of Israel, their national deity. No, he is the Most High, the supreme creator God who is in total charge of this world. He's the one that gives every nation their own land as an inheritance. We'll see more of that in chapters 1 to 3 next week. And yet he has set his particular affections on Israel. Did you notice the little shift in the language there? The lands of each nation is their inheritance, verse 8. But verse 9, God's people are his inheritance. It doesn't say that the land of Canaan is Israel's inheritance, although that was true. But the people themselves are God's inheritance. They are his precious possession, cherished and special to him. And we can see that in what he's done for them. Verse 10. 
In a desert land, he found him. In a barren and howling waste, he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions, the Lord alone led him. No foreign God was with him. This is a beautiful little passage, and I wish we had more time to dwell on it, but just look at some of the imagery here. The picture is of Israel parched and lifeless and dying in the howling wasteland of the desert. Moses uses here the same word that he used in Genesis 1 to describe the chaos and disorder of creation before God brought life to it. Formless and void, barren and howling, God reaches into this wasteland and scoops little Israel up. Like you lift a, a newborn baby from the delivery table. Some of our church family have had the, uh, uh, that experience recently. And they will have felt the same way as God feels in verse 10. Israel are the apple of his eye. They're all he can look at. His precious, beloved child. But as well as creating Israel to start with, God has also rescued them. Picture the image in verse 11 of an eagle hovering devotedly over its nest, guarding its little chicks, and then swooping to catch them when they fall and carrying them to safety. This is the language God used in Exodus 19 to describe how he brought them from slavery and danger under the Pharaoh of Egypt to freedom and safety in the Exodus, like an eagle carrying them on eagle's wings. And he alone, verse 12, has done it. No one could be in any doubt that the God of Israel has triumphed over all the false gods and idols of Egypt. Just as God alone is the creator, so God alone is the saviour. And not only has God fathered his people and mothered his people and chosen his people and saved his people, he's also nourished his people. Verse 13. He made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruit of the fields. He nourished him with honey from the rock and with oil from the flinty crag, with curds and milk from herd and flock and with fattened lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan and the finest grains of wheat. He drank the foaming blood of the grape. Now, if you're thinking at this point, hang on, when has that happened? That's a really good question. Because since the Exodus, God's people have lived on manna and quail in the desert. They got water from the rock, they didn't get honey. But remember, this is going to be Israel's song for all their generations. And this, poetically described, is Israel's story for all those generations. They've been lavishly provided for, and they will be lavishly provided for, by the God who can bring abundance out of nothing. Look at the feast that's on display here. Honey and oil, curds and milk, meat and bread, grapes so luscious and juicy that their wine is like foaming blood. My parents have a, a word for food which is supposed to be good for you. You know, food which is a bit tasteless and austere and has lots of grains and vitamins in it. They say, oh, it's a bit worthy. Well, in that sense, there is nothing worthy about God's provision here, nothing stingy or mean. This is not the bare essentials. I tend to say it's not really very good for you. Of course it's good for you, but it's, it's rich and fatty and sumptuous fare. This is how the Father God has provided for his children. He's done it all. He's created, redeemed, saved, and nourished his people. This is sovereign grace. So second question for us to think about, is this your view of God? When you think of God, does this image get a look in? The sovereign father, the powerful savior, the abundant provider. A God who is for his people, who longs for their goods, who provides more than they would ever need. 
that's not your view of God, let me ask you another question. Where are you getting your view of God from? Are you getting your view of God from his life-giving words? Or is it from something else? The voices of others or your own limited, biased interpretation of your own circumstances? It's very easy to do. Because as we'll see, the people of Israel did not always have this view of God. In fact, they turned away from God to our third point, foolish idolatry. The third verse of Israel's national anthem is where it all starts to go wrong. Verse 15, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, he became heavy and sleek. He abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock, his saviour. Jeshurun, in verse 15, is, is something of an ironic little nickname, a pet name. It means something like my little upright one or my little law keeper or something like that. But the apple of God's eye, whom God bore and chose and loved and saved and nourished and disciplined, is not a little lawkeeper anymore. It's begun to behave like a spoilt brat. Again, this song poetically and prophetically tells the story that Israel kept repeating. Later in this series, we're going to see Moses tell the people that when they get into the promised land, they are going to find life, in some senses, very, very easy indeed. It is, after all, a rich and abundant land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But Moses tells them that as a warning, because with riches and comfort comes danger. The danger of thinking they deserve their comforts, that they earn them, that they're entitled to them, and therefore the danger of forgetting the Lord their gods. And here in Israel's national anthem, we see that Moses' warning will not be heeded. They will grow fat and comfortable and lazy and careless. In verse 15, uh, the word for rejected, the rejected the rock, is literally regarded as foolish. They treat God and his worship as a foolish thing to do, a waste of their time. After all, we have everything we need. Now that we're well-fed and well-established and our enemies are defeated and we live in nice, comfortable houses and our children are well-educated, well, what do we need God for? They forget, do you see, that all these good things come from God's. They enjoy his gifts. In fact, they overindulge in God's gifts. And because of that, they utterly abandon the giver. They gorge on the fruits of their salvation, but reject the rock who saved them. But being human beings, they don't stop being worshippers just because they stop worshipping God. No, being human beings, they have to worship something. Verse 16 they made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons, which are not gods, gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your fathers did not fear. They turned to idols, and we learn two things about those idols in these verses. They are foreign and they are recent. Now, we're told they're foreign not because God or Moses is xenophobic or racist or anything like that, but the parallels with verse 12. In verse 12, we read that God makes it clear that he alone is the creator. He alone is their savior. He has shown himself to be utterly above the idols of the other nations, to be stronger than them, kinder than them, better than them. He is the real God, the most high who created everything, and the idols are creatures born of the imaginations of men, or worse, verse 17, inspired by the activity of demons. The things that the people turn to in their 
their heavy overindulgence in their greed and their complacency, the things that they rely on and cling to and live for and worship, they're not gods, and therefore they're not good. They're foreign and they're recent, verse 17, gods that only recently appeared. Perhaps this is why they consider the worship of God to be foolish. One of the reasons might be is because it's old. It's old hat. It's what we used to do. Do you remember when we used to worship Yahweh? Oh, that was silly, wasn't it? It's become tired and boring and dated and irrelevant. And anyway, God is so demanding with all these rules and laws and instructions. But have you heard about this new idea? There's this new God who makes slightly fewer demands. A God who lets me do whatever I like. A God whose commands are new and exciting and are more liberal and a little bit transgressive in an exciting way. And yet God says it's the very newness of these gods that ought to be a cause for concern. If they're new, then they've not done anything for you. If they're new, then they have no claim on you. If they're new, then you don't really know them and they don't really know you. If they are new, then they surely cannot be the creator God who made you at the beginning and saved you. This is Israel's story. So here's another question, a third question to grapple with. Do you recognize yourself in this? As God exposes the hearts of his people, Israel, do you feel a bit exposed? Do you feel a bit uncomfortable? I do. Do you see that this is our problem? In fact, this is the problem of our world. Do you see yourself, could you see yourself as someone like this, someone who craves the good things of this world that God alone gives, but gives little or no thought to the giver? Someone who is tempted to overindulgence and to complacency and laziness. Someone who's tempted towards idolatry. Now, we, we might not think of ourselves as idolaters, but do we find ourselves relying on and clinging to and living for and functionally worshipping something that isn't the creator God? Do we find ourselves living for our own comfort, living for our own indulgence, and prepared to accept any account of the world that tells us that's okay. That tells us, oh, do you know what? We're only animals, so it doesn't really matter how we live. That tells us that there is no God and no judgment, so eat, drink, and be merry. And are we aware that people in our world are actively trying to sell us that new delusion, that new idolatry? In 1957, um, Vance Packard published a book called The Hidden Persuaders, which is all about how the techniques which advertisers use to sell products to people. And he said that quite self-consciously, advertisers promised that products would meet eight compelling needs in people's hearts. Emotional security, reassurance of worth, the gratification of ego, an outlet for creativity, an object of love, a sense of power, a sense of rootedness, and immortality. I think these days I would want to add a ninth, which is righteousness. You will be a good person if you buy this product because we're good people. I think we see that more and more, don't we, in the advertising we see? Do you see that in the adverts? Do you see that that is being sold to you all the time? When we buy into that promise, when we believe the advertiser's hype, we transfer our affection from the God who made us and the only one who could truly supply us with all those things, a sense of rootedness, a sense of power, an object of love, immortality, righteousness. Only God can give us those things, but we transfer them from the God who made us to a thing that we've made. As verse 18 tells us, we desert the rock who fathered us. That's the heart of idolatry. 
And although God will bear with his people's idolatry for a while, soon there will come deserved judgment. Now, we're going to have to move much more quickly through these verses for time's sake, which is a shame, but there we are. But I want us not to miss the sheer horror of what we read here. Perhaps the scariest verse is verse 19. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. Why is that such a scary verse? Well, it seems to be a deliberate echo of Exodus 2 verse 25, which we'll put on the screen. When uh, God saw the pain of his people in slavery in Egypt and God saw the sons of Israel and God knew. You see, then God saw his children, his sons and daughters, and he knows, that is, he remembers his covenant. He knows their pain. His heart goes out to them. He acts to save them from his slavery. Now he once again sees his sons and daughters and rejects them. And so here is judgment first for Israel. It's a wholly fitting and deserved judgment, as it says in verse 20. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I'll make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. Do you see what God does? In the face of their idolatry and their sin and their rejection of him, he simply, verse 20, lets them get on with it. He hides his face, he withdraws his blessing, he hands them over to the consequences of their sin. They've rejected their rock, who is their foundation and their refuge and their provider. And God says, well, what do you think is going to happen next? They've rejected their foundation, so they're going to be shaken. They've rejected their refuge, so they'll be exposed and vulnerable. They've rejected their provider, so they'll be famished. And that particularly comes through a punishment which fits the crime. Verse 21, if they are going to turn to weak and pathetic idols, then God is going to conquer them with a weak and pathetic nation. God raised up Israel from nothing. He's quite capable of raising up from the nations over which he has complete control another nation to be the tool of his judgment. And that judgment really is terrifying. Verse 22 speaks about it as the end of the world. A fire that devours the whole earth and burns down to shale, the, 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 the land below, the death, realm of death below. It's a judgment which comes from all sides. Verse 23, there is warfare. Verse uh, 24, there is famine and plague. Verse 24, again, there is wild beasts and snakes. Nowhere is safe, verse 25. The streets are full of danger, but so are the houses. Men and women, young or old, no one is immune. The promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, has become a wasteland, a war zone flowing with blood. And in Israel's history, this all came to pass. They abandoned God and they made alliances with other nations that worshipped other gods. But when those alliances went sour, those other nations turned on them with fury and with cruelty, with none of the mercy and compassion that God, their rock, could surely offer them. And yet... The God that is in charge of all nations does show compassion. Israel's judgment will not be total. Look at verse 26. I said I would scatter them and blot out their memory from mankind, but I dreaded the taunt of the enemy, lest the adversary misunderstand and say, our hand has triumphed. The Lord has not done all this. Do you see what stays the Lord's hand? 
for their idolatry and their rejection, Israel deserved to be utterly destroyed. But God is so concerned that this would lead Israel's enemies to conclude that they had won, that God was powerless and pathetic, and that their idols were stronger than Israel's God, the God of the universe, that God's own reputation and glory would suffer, and that, that would not do. As verse 30 says, the only way an idolatrous nation could succeed against God's nation is if God himself had given his people over to destruction who is actually acting in judgment. You see, the enemy nations that God was using in his sovereignty to, to judge Israel were themselves utterly foolish and sinful and liable to judgment, as verses 31 to 33 tell us. These other foreign nations, these idolatrous nations that God's using for a time, they don't worship God, the rock, verse 31, and their actions are full of bitterness and poison, verse 32 and 33. And so that means, though, that even as God brings judgment on Israel through their enemies, later there will be judgment for Israel's enemies as well. Look at verse 34. Have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vaults? It's mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. God may use an idolatrous nation to bring judgment, but he will not allow that nation to persist in their idolatry forever. Sooner or later, do you see, he is going to bring justice to the whole world in his own time and by his own counsel, according to a plan which he has tucked away in his own private to-do list. As Moses says in chapter 10, with God there is no favoritism, and there is always justice. Verse 40 to 42 tells us that the same kind of judgment which fell on Israel for their idolatry will one day fall on all people for their idolatry, whatever nation or background or family they come from. And when that judgment finally falls, there will be no escape. Look at verse 37. He will say, now where are their gods? The rock they took refuge in. The gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hands. See, whatever the people have put their trust in, whatever they're, they're looking to, to give them hope and protection and meaning and life and to fulfill their compelling needs, it will all be revealed to be utterly useless. These other rocks are loose shale and sinking sand. They take all the sacrifice of the people, but they don't do them any good. And so in the final judgment on all people, all will see that God alone is God's. He can deliver his people out of the hand of any foreign idol, any powerful-looking nation. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, not a problem. He can deliver them out of any hand, but no one can deliver out of his hand. So a fourth question for us to ponder as we reflect on this today. Do we see that this is the biggest problem that we face in our world? As a world, of course, we, we face many problems, don't we? Viruses, wars, the rising cost of living, damage we're doing to the planet, poor leadership, and those are problems. But they're all symptoms of a much, much deeper disease. We are a world who has abandoned the rock, the creator gods, 
and we've put our trust in other things to provide for us and to nourish us and to save us. We've put our trust in our own human ingenuity in science. We've put our trust in vague spirituality and in education, in economic systems and political power, in the concept of sexual freedom and progress, in materialism and comfort and Silicon Valley, in other gods and other religions. We have sacrificed so much to these things, hoping that they will save us, hoping that they will nourish us, hoping that they will protect us, hoping that they will be a solid foundation on which we can build healthy lives and happy societies. And they're letting us down. Can we deny that? In Romans 1, Paul says that the chaos and the moral confusion and the pain of our world is due to God handing us over to the consequences of our idolatry and our sin and such is our world and our society today. And yet that is only a foretaste of the judgment to come, a deserved judgment which will truly be the end of the world. Do we see that this is the biggest problem we face in our world today? That we've abandoned the rock for the sinking sand of idols. But the song is not quite over. What is the purpose and result of all this judgment? Is Israel's national anthem just a lament, just a funeral dirge? Will the, the pattern of sin and idolatry and judgment never end? Well, there's one final surprise in the passage. It ends with amazing grace. Look at verse 43 with me. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. See, God has just said that he's going to judge Israel and he's going to judge the enemies of Israel for their complete and total idolatry. But then this verse just comes out of absolutely nowhere, doesn't it? Suddenly, instead of the threat of judgment and the terror of God's wrath, comes a call to rejoice. And not just Israel, but all the nations. Those idolatrous nations that God has sworn to judge are called to gather with Israel and sing for joy. God said that he's going to take vengeance on those who have been his enemies. And also, um, sorry, and we've learned throughout this song that pretty much everyone is, is his enemy, Right? whether from Israel or from the other nations, and God's going to take vengeance, and yet when the dust settles on his judgment, as God's arrows are spent and his wrath is exhausted, somehow there's this group left standing. A group of people made up of both Israelites and Gentiles, both his people and the enemies of his people, joined together in the promised land singing songs of joy. And that's because somehow they've been atoned for. That is, somehow, though through the judgment of God being poured out against sin, sin has been paid for. Justice has been satisfied, and yet sinners are forgiven. Wrath has come, and yet the result is mercy. How is that remotely possible? Well, as we were thinking about in the Growth Group Central this week, it's a tension which will not be resolved until the cross of Jesus Christ. As Jesus died, the sky went dark, the earth shook and split. It was the judgment of God, the end of the world, the whole of God's judgment on the world's idolatry and rejection of him poured out on the only man who didn't deserve it. And yet, as Paul tells us on the screen in Romans 3, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 
He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The cross is where wrath and mercy meet, where justice is done and forgiveness is won. And so here's a question, and particularly a question if you've been a Christian for a decent length of time. Does this grace still amaze you? Does it still shock you that God could be so just and so kind? And for all of us, let's think about this question. Do you see the gap between what you deserve and what you're offered in Jesus? Let's conclude this morning. What have we just looked at? What is this song, this national anthem? Well, this is Israel's story. I hope this has served to whet your appetite for the next six weeks because we're going to see these themes play out again and again in the book of Deuteronomy and in the book of Isaiah after that. We're going to learn more and more about God's life-giving words, his sovereign grace, uh, Israel's foolish idolatry and the deserved judgment on both Israel and all the nations and about God's uh, amazing grace. So if a lot of this went by quite quickly today, don't worry, we've got six weeks to, to figure all this out. It's Israel's story, but it's also our story. Israel is not uniquely sinful. As we've seen today, the nations are just the same and we are just the same. God's word shines a searchlight into our own hearts and what we find there isn't very pretty. We are all too prone, I am all too prone, to reject the rock, our foundation, our refuge, our provision, and to try and put our weight and our confidence on so-called rocks that can do us no good at all. Perhaps you know today that that's where you are at the moment. Perhaps you're not a Christian, or perhaps you'd call yourself a Christian, but you know you've wandered far away from God in your thinking, in your belief, in your behavior. Perhaps you're feeling very convicted by Deuteronomy 32. Perhaps you know that this is your story, that you've rejected God, that you've been self-indulgent and thankless towards him, that you've lived your life as if he didn't exist, that you've turned to other things to give your life meaning and satisfaction and direction. Perhaps you're wondering if there can be any hope for you given the, the horror of God's judgment in these verses. Well, if that's you, let me point you to verse 36. Where Moses says, The Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left slave or free. You see, the point where God meets his people with compassion and grace is precisely the point when they run out of their own strength when they've experienced his chastening judgment and know that they have nothing to offer him. As Joe showed us last week on Easter Sunday, when they know their bowl is empty and all they have left is to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what if we have done that? What if you do that today? We will find that Deuteronomy 32 is our story no longer. The cycle that persisted in Israel's history, the, the cycle that Moses could foresee from the very beginning of complacency and forgetfulness and idolatry and judgment is decisively broken in the cross of Jesus Christ. The threat of curse no longer hangs over God's people because it has all been poured out on Christ in our place. And we can tell that by how this song is quoted in the New Testament. Remember, this is a song about Israel, about God's people, about how they have become, in verse 5, a warped and crooked generation. But look at what Paul says on the screen in Philippians 2. 
writing to the church, he says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe holding fast the word of life. Do you see what he's saying? As we come to Christ, as we're forgiven by him and transformed by him, we become truly God's children, people who listen to the life-giving word, who are taken out of the warped and crooked generation and become the light to that generation that Israel was always meant to be. That's also the way this song is used in Romans 10 and 11 and Romans 15, where Paul tells his Gentile hearers, rejoice, O nations, with his people. Through the amazing grace of God's, through the cross of Christ, we who were the enemies of God, the no people of verse 21, receive his mercy and become his precious children, the apple of his eye, those who will not face his curse but will receive his blessing of eternal life in the new creation forever. Jesus takes Christians. If you trust in Jesus today, Jesus will take you out of the story of Deuteronomy 32 and give you a new song to sing. Rejoice, O nations, with his people. Let me pray. Father, we want to acknowledge this morning that although these words have been hard to hear, yet they are true. This is our story too, that we're people who so often reject you and turn aside to idols that we think we can get from creative things something that only you can provide. And Father, we're sorry for our sin and our idolatry, our foolishness. And we thank you so much that this foolishness of ours need not end in curse and judgment because Jesus Christ has taken that curse and judgment for us. And so we pray that we would be a people who put our trust in Jesus, who become truly your children, shining like stars amid a warped and crooked generation. Please forgive us, Father, and thank you that you provide a way home through the cross of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.